Today's teaching text comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Happy Labor Day weekend to all of you. Uh, it, has, it has been a summer like none of us have ever experienced, and I'm so grateful for the, the many voices that have shaped this prayer series. I, I hope that you are growing as a person who talks and listens to God. Uh, I hope that we are growing as a church, as those who talk and listen to God. And I just, I can't encourage you enough to make a priority of a daily prayer practice in your life, uh, but also to find uh, spaces and ways to pray together. Uh, we have some opportunities available in our church right now for you to do that with others. Um, and we're going to have more coming this fall. And um, as we're wrapping up this series on prayer today, I just, right at the top, I just want to encourage you, let's not just talk about this or think about this. Let's be people who are, who are crying out to God. And uh, as we end this series today, I, I want to look at this story uh, from, the, from the book of Acts that you may or may not be very familiar with. Um, and I want to look at it because it is somehow uh, both outstanding uh, and miraculous while also being very relatable, uh, kind of ordinary, and I think even funny. Um, 
Uh, It's a narrative that shows us the church at prayer in a moment that surely felt impossible. Uh, we've, We've spoken about many occasions for prayer, types of prayer this summer. Uh, But as 2020 has shown us, and certainly other times in our lives as well, but as this year has shown us, we need to know how to pray when when things feel impossible. Uh, So so what do I mean? How do you pray in an election year that feels as fraught as this one? When, if we're really honest, and our first allegiance is to God and the kingdom of God, not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, and and really neither platform fully represents uh, the the reality of the kingdom of God expressed in our world. How do we pray? How do we vote? How do we we think? How do we entrust our hearts to God and trust our nation to God in a moment that feels so divided and so polarized and like there's just constantly, you know, fuel being thrown on the fire. How do we pray in a year like this year? But, but also, how do we pray when a pandemic is stretching into month seven and we're not sure when this is going to end? We're not sure when our jobs are going to come back. We're not sure when life is going to get back to normal. How do you pray when someone that you love or you yourself receives a terminal diagnosis? And the medical professionals are saying there isn't much hope here or there isn't any hope here. How do you pray in a moment like that? How do you pray when you've sworn that you're not going to return to a certain type of thought or behavior and yet you find yourself back in the middle of it? How do you pray when you feel absolutely entrenched in an addiction? How how do you pray in those moments? How do you pray when you feel anxious and depressed and there are thoughts running in your mind that you feel like, "I, I have all the willpower that I can muster to stop this from happening and yet it continues to plague me? How do you pray when you feel anxious and depressed? How, how do you pray when, when the change that we, we are longing for in certain areas of our culture seems so agonizingly slow in coming and it just doesn't feel like we're making any progress at all? Basically, how do you pray when, we get, when you get to the point uh, that human resources alone cannot make the difference that you need to be made in a particular situation? And I think this story speaks powerfully to that. So I want to set the scene for us. Um, the, the story opens like this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So just a couple of narrative details to give us some context. This is King Herod, but we we see King Herod show up a bunch. This is not the same King Herod that was there when Jesus was born or that Jesus interacted with. Actually, those are two separate people as well. This King Herod is the great-grandson of of, of Herod the Great. Uh, He's the, sorry, the grandson of Herod the Great, the son of Herod Antipas, um, who who Jesus interacted with. Um, He is a famously immoral man, um, but he has tried to align himself with religious leaders of his day who have political power. He is, uh, he is the Roman hired hand. Um, 
and that his true power only goes so far as he represents Rome's interests, which surely means he has to keep the peace uh, and, and uh, he has to stamp out any potential uprisings that might occur. But we also see that he's sort of testing how far his power goes in this story. Um, he's seeing how, how far he can go with using violence and, and confinement uh, to win points, uh, to sort of score political capital with the Jewish authorities. So he kills James, the brother of John, uh, with the sword. And that, that little detail is important because he wasn't stoned. Uh, Herod killing um, James, the brother of John, with the sword means he wasn't killing him for breaking the law of Moses. He was killing him because he was saying he's a political threat. That this, this group, this, this group of Jesus followers represents the possibility of a political uprising against the traditions uh, of the Jewish people and also against, uh, against their, their, their Roman occupiers. So he, he, he kills uh, James, the brother of John, but then he waits to see how it is received. Um, James, we know, was a disciple, a dear friend of Jesus. He, he's, he's brother to John, who gives us an account of Jesus' life, who gives us the revelation. Um, but Herod has him executed. And once he saw that this pleased um, those with influence in the Sanhedrin, uh, he decides he could go for a bigger prize. So he goes, he goes after Peter. Um, and and we, we, have, we have this beginning of the story. We have this reality that actually, if we, if we study our history books, is something that we have to contend with uh, over and over again throughout history. What, whatever legitimate uses um, uh, that, that, that power has to arrest, um, to imprison others, right, that the state, the state has, we also have to reckon with how easily that power uh, can be used, how often it has been used to manipulate Uh, to intimidate, to control, and to oppress certain populations that those in power deem a threat. This is is not an absolute new reality in the world, and it's certainly not the last time we're going to see it by by any means. Uh, William James Jennings points something out that I thought was uh, interesting and telling. Um, He says, Just as we never leave the presence of the Spirit in Luke's narrative, We never leave sight of the prison. It is always with us, always offering the antithesis uh, to the good news. So, basic level of the story, we have Peter arrested, and he's put into what can only be called maximum security confinement here until his public trial um, can be of maximum political gain for for Herod. The text tells us, so, uh, verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping, imagine how comfortable this must have been, between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Just a bit earlier in the text, it tells us Peter had four squads of four guards uh, each guarding him. So there's this rotation. He had been stripped and, and, and chained even as he was sleeping. Uh, James has already been killed. So For all intents and purposes, there seems to be nothing that is standing in the way of Herod going ahead with his plan to kill kill Peter. The situation is impossible. There's no other way to say it. And it says, and the church is earnestly praying to God for him. 
The translation of, of that word earnestly in, in, the, in the NIV, it doesn't fully get at, 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 at all that's there in that word. It sort of indicates the prayer was ongoing, but the prayer was also passionate. In other translations, it says prayers were, were, were continuously given um, for Peter. Um, they, they were regularly praying. Literally, they were stretched out for him is what, is what the, 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 the words indicate. But all the way up to the end of verse 6, it seems like Peter's situation is hopeless. This is how he is going to meet his end. And yet, prayer moves the heart of God. Prayer gets us connected with the heart of God and the will of God. Prayer prayer activates our faith, and we see prayer um, is is used to activate divine action in our world. Now, I want to say, right, though God can do whatever God wants to do, He repeatedly shows us how committed He is to working through relational pathways and through the prayers of His people. Could God do whatever He wants? Absolutely. But he seems radically committed to participating with us in seeing his kingdom come and seeing acts of mercy done and seeing acts of deliverance done and seeing justice done. He, he wants us to be participants. He loves to give us a share. God works through prayer. So would Peter have been rescued if the church didn't pray? I don't know. But I do firmly believe the scriptures intend to show us over and over again there are many good things that will not happen unless the people of God pray. Jesus taught his disciples uh, to, to pray with persistence like the answers really hinged on it. Remember the parable where the person's already asleep and the, and the other one comes and, and they're just knocking at the door and they keep knocking and keep knocking and, and, the, and, and the parable goes on. Jesus says, it's not out of friendship. It's because he's so audaciously persistent. He just con- continues like shameless audacity to continue knocking. We, we have uh, examples in these sort of mysterious moments in, in, in the scriptures where we get a few glimpses where spiritual warfare behind the scenes seems to be taking place. Um, and Jackie did such a good job earlier in the series of talking about the reality of, 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 of spiritual conflict going on around us that we so often want to or just do ignore. Um, but there's these glimpses in the New Testament where spiritual warfare seems to be taking place and the people of God are praying and resources of deliverance have been, have, have, have been sent um, for, from heaven and yet the response feels, feels delayed. Um, but the actions in these instances are often spurred by prayer and there's a direct connection. The text is helping us make make the link. James 4 tells us, you have not because you ask not, right? Literally, there are things that are not taking place because you're not seeking seeking God in prayer. Jesus said, um, right, classically, if you do not abide in me, you can't do anything. God is so committed to this relational process. He's so committed to giving us a share. So do we think this doesn't apply to us? (laughs) We have to remember this is how God is going to bring his kingdom in the world. He's going to bring it through the prayers of his people. So the church meets in this impossible situation. And the way they meet this impossible situation is with ongoing passionate prayer. Now, I want to, I want to admit, right, just my um, 
sort of set, set up the way I think about things. Um, there are times when the triumphalism that, that can show up in the church will make me cringe a little bit. It will make, it, it feels trite to me sometimes. Like it's it's not looking at the real world or it's not honest about the suffering and pain that we experience as human beings. Like we know, right? Life is not a, 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 a slogan t-shirt. Life is not a, a Bible verse taken out of context. Jesus might not want your sports team to win as hard as that is to deal with. But, but, but if triumphalism is over here as a potential problem, I think even worse, something I'm, I'm equally worried about in our world and in the church in my own heart is, is cynicism, right? That has a hold of many of our hearts that, that basically never bothers to cry out to the God of the impossible. And increasingly, I'm getting to this place where I'm saying, if we're going to make an error, let's make an error to expect more of God and not less, Let's be those people who are pressing in and crying out with all of our hearts to the God of the impossible. Sure, life is not always lined up with the chorus of our favorite worship song, but also life is is not just deconstruction. Life is not just cynicism. Life is not just apathy and hopelessness, right? Apathy is calling out to a God of the impossible, knowing that God of the impossible has worked many times in the past in unfathomably good ways and maybe will again in this moment. We see the church praying together in earnest. And then we have verse 7, which is sort of a turning point in this passage. And God sends what seems on first reading to me to be sort of a grumpy angel uh, to get Peter out of jail. Uh, verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap up your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him, and Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Uh, then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. The angel hits him. The angel gives him pretty blunt orders. Uh, the angel walks him out, but then he literally, the text specifies, only was willing to go one block with him before he bolts. And he doesn't really explain very much. And Peter sort of feels like he's waking up in a, in a daze. I, I almost feel like you get the sense this angel was doing something else and God came and was like, listen, I need you to get down there and get Peter out of jail. Everybody's praying. You have to go. He, he sort of feels a bit to me like my kids when they're, when they're watching something and I'm like, I need you to go down to the basement and get the laundry out of the dryer. And like, dad, let me finish this episode or whatever. But um, nevertheless, grumpy or not, maybe the angel was in a great mood, but Peter is miraculously rescued. And on a more serious note, I love how William James Jennings points out uh, the angel sort of in stages restores Peter's dignity um, as he is rescuing him, as he is bringing him deliverance. First of all, he shines a light on what's really happening behind the, lock, the locked gates of power. He sort of exposes, hey, listen, you want to do this in secret, but light is now shining on it and showing the reality for what it is. What a powerful thing, the kingdom of God, the power of God, the, 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 the word of God can do, the people of God. It shows Peter's true condition. But then he removes his chains. Imagine sleeping uh, with chains on. He, he has him dressed, right? He, he's, he's literally naked and chained to two guards with a rotation uh, of security around him. 
He, he, gets him, he, he gets him dressed, he has him covered and protected, and then he walks him past the guards and through the gates. He is by, by stages restoring Peter's dignity, getting him back to the place where he, where he can walk and remember his place as a son of the Most High, as one who's been delivered and not so uh, recently uh, restored by Jesus on the beach as one to, to feed the sheep and to lead the church. Nothing can hold him once God has determined he will be delivered. Nothing can hold him once God has determined he will be delivered. Nothing can hold you once God has determined you should be delivered. So let's quickly see the aftermath of the story. There's some more amusing parts coming. Verse 12, uh, When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her, when she kept insisting... Uh, that, that, that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Uh, Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Rhoda is so shocked and overjoyed to see Peter, she turns around and leaves him standing there, knocking at, at, at the door, locked out of the gate, right? The angel got him out of jail, but can't get, he can't get into the prayer meeting here. Um, the folks gathered to pray are so full of faith uh, that, that when their prayer is answered, they tell Rhoda um, that she's out of her mind or, or that if she's seen anything, it must be his, his, his ghost. Um, I, I love that. These are not just simple, um, gullible, uh, superstitious people that are, that are ready to believe any myth. They knew, they knew that what they were asking for was impossible. <laughs> That's why they react to Rhoda the way they do, right? They're, they're, not, they're not just, they had already seen James be killed by Herod. They're, they're praying with all their might, and yet at the same moment, they're, they're really doubting that there's any chance change can come. I like what N.T. Wright says about this moment. I think it's uh, so well put. He says, I find all this strangely comforting, partly because Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith, but as the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute and doubt the next sort of people as most Christians we all know. And partly I find it comforting because it would be easy for skeptical thinkers to dismiss the story of Peter's release from jail as a pious legend, except for the fact that nobody constructing a pious legend out of thin air would have made up this ridiculous little story of Rhoda and the praying but hopeless church. It has the ring of truth, ordinary truth, down-to-earth truth. At the very moment, it is telling us something truly extraordinary and heaven-on-earthish has occurred, right? We are not going to find ourselves in Peter's exact situation. We are not going to find ourselves in an ancient Middle Eastern prison chained between teams of rotating guards uh, awaiting uh, basically a sham trial so that we can be put to death for political uh, gain. But we very well uh, may find ourselves in situations that seem impossible, that from all the evaluations we can make in the natural world are impossible. And what are we going to do? What will we do? We will pray. We will pray. 
We will cry out to God, to the God of the impossible. And as, as we wrap up this series on, on prayer, I want to challenge you with just, just what we see here in this story. I want to I invite you, ask you, challenge you, call you to pray with your full heart. James had been killed by Herod. I don't want you, I know we've mentioned it several times already, but we can't rush past the reality of that detail in the story. Beloved apostle, uh, 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 beloved apostle, he, he apprenticed under Jesus. He was a part of the inner circle. When Jesus went up to the mountain to be transfigured, James was there. I, do you think they hadn't prayed for James? Of course they had. I'm sure they had prayed for James, but James had been killed. And yet they do not give up on prayer. I think that's so important. They do not stop praying in earnest. They do not stop prayer. They don't stop offering up their real hearts. Their prayers hadn't dried up. They hadn't become resigned that the world is just too broken. Instead, they pray with their whole hearts. They, the church was offering prayers earnestly for him, expectantly for him. We're going we're to get to that. So pray with your full heart. Also pray continuously. Right? These things that we need to see changed in our world, changed in our hearts, changed in our families, changed in our lives. It's, it's, it's not just talking to God one time about it, but it is the persistence of ongoing relationships to let our hearts and minds be shaped in that interaction, but also to, to, to leverage the spiritual power and authority God has given us to see divine action take place in our world. This, this, this early church is remembering what Jesus had shown them and taught them about prayer. Right? Jesus, who had every reason of any of us to expect that his prayers would be answered, he still fasted and prayed for 40 days before he chose his disciples. Over and over again, we see him rising before dawn, early in the morning, to pray over and over again. He doesn't have sins to confess. He knows what he's here for. He's not like, God, what do you, what, what, what's your will, will for me? He's, he's seeking intimacy with God. He's seeking the divine action of the Father to be pressed, pressed down into the, the actual details of our world. When he was faced with those impossible moments in Gethsemane, what does he do? He prays. He prays over and over again, even as his dearest friends slept. The church is doing what they saw Jesus doing. They're, they're praying with their full heart, but they're also praying continuously, on and on, regularly, right? And, and, and you see this, like, in Thessalonians, it says, you know, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean there's never a moment where we're not consciously praying? I don't think so. I think it means whenever we, whenever it comes back to our minds, we return to prayer, right? Like, many of you will say, I wish I was praying more in my life. Well, instead of just having that thought right right there in that moment, begin to pray. That's, that's, that's how you do it. Every moment that you begin to think about a, a struggle or a challenge, or a confusion or, or something going on in the, in, in the reality of your world or life, begin to pray right in that moment, continuously be coming back to the heart of God. The early church was doing what they could do. They couldn't break in and get Peter out of jail, but God also was doing what God can do. Pray with your full heart. Pray continuously. Also pray together. Pray together. There is a lot of power in the church when we, when we pray together. The early church, right, you look through this narrative in Acts, we're to chapter 12 here, but if you look through all the beginning, all, over and over again at post-Pentecost, what do you see the church doing? They're doing tons of generosity and tons of, of mercies being expressed, and they're taking care of one another, and they're proclaiming the gospel, but over and over you see they're praying, they're praying, they're praying, and they're praying together. 
This is what it means to be the body of Christ, expressing the will and reality of, of Jesus who is the head, is to be a people who are praying together. I, here, here's things that I find that show up in my, in my life when I'm praying with other people. One, my concentration for one reason or another seems to increase when I'm praying with other people than when I'm praying on my own. For some reason, I just don't drift as much when there's other people. Maybe that's pride or self-consciousness or whatever it is, but I'm grateful for it. When I pray with other people, I see an uptick in my concentration. I also have sensed a power in shared faith, right? With a moment where I feel like I'm lagging, I feel apathetic, I feel like I just don't know what to say or what to believe. And then I hear a brother or sister praying. I, I say, oh, I can join my faith to their faith. So I have up, in, increase in concentration and uh, the, the, the beauty and joy of shared faith. Uh, again, right alongside that, sometimes I don't know the words to pray. And yet a brother or sister will pray right next to me. And I'll take those words and I'll use them in my own private prayer, right? I begin to be directed in my heart how to how to speak to God. There is a unity of heart that is irreplaceable that begins to be grown as we pray as we pray together, right? You hear, oh, I see how this brother or sister cares about this thing. I see, I see how they care about it in a way similar to me. There, there's something so powerful about knitting our hearts together when we pray together. We're also filling in the gaps, right? Our own places of weakness or, or, or doubt or fear, right? We begin to sort of like ha- have this, uh, this filling in the gap that takes place when we pray together. Pray on your own, absolutely. We need a daily prayer practice every day in our lives as followers of Jesus, but we need to find times. We need to make times. We need to be intentional about praying together. And the last thing I'll say that I think we see in the church here is to pray expectant. And I don't mean that we have to psych ourselves up that every single thing is going to happen exactly as we, as we would imagine it should happen. But we, we, we can be honest about our daunting odds. Uh, but let's not let cynicism rule our hearts. Let's not let our doubt be, be, be louder than any, anything else. Our impossible situations are not the first of their kind. It's really important to remember that. Let's let's. Pray like we're praying to the God who got Peter out of jail, who, 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 who brought Jesus out of the grave, right? The same power that conquered the grave lives in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray like people who know how this story ends and how the, the picture of the story of, of the narrative of, 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 of salvation and human life ends as well. We don't know, you know, situation to situation when it's going to be James or when it's going to be Peter, But our future is secure, and we can pray with expectation, pray with all our might. Our world needs healing. We need healing in so many ways. I love, it's been mentioned a few times in this series, but Karl Barth said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Church, even in the disorder of the world, even in the seemingly impossible, we have to pray. So our, our nation is divided. It is polarized. It is confusing. It is challenging. It is breaking our hearts. It is an election year. What will we do? Pray. You just received a devastating diagnosis. You don't know how you're going to deal with it. You don't know how it's going to inf- impact your family. You're, 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 you're losing sleep. What are you going to do? Pray. You're trapped in an addiction. You can't seem to break free. You've sworn all these promises to yourself and to others, and yet you find yourself back in the same behavior. What are you going to do? Pray. Your marriage is falling apart. You don't have the resources for understanding, for moving in compassion and empathy towards the other, for forgiveness. What are you going to do? Pray. 
Your job might be not be coming back. You have no idea where your income is going to come from in the next 12 months or the, or, or the next few years. You, what are you going to do? Pray. We have racist policies and, 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 and horrific violence against our black and brown neighbors. And it seems like, how is this happening over and over again? What are we going to do? We're going to pray. Your heart and mind feels hopeless. What are you going to do? Pray. Someone you, you love is, is, is light years from God. They feel like God's not for them or God's love doesn't count for them. What are you going to do? How, how would you bring about change? Pray. Pray with all your heart. Pray continuously. Pray together. Pray expectantly. Of course, we're not saying prayer is the only action, but prayer is the, is the, is the base undergirding all of our action. We, we have tons of stuff to be doing but let's be honest, many of us have defaulted just to doing. And that's where we get burned out. That's where we get exhausted. That's where our stress takes over. That's where we realize we're just working on human resources and we're not abiding. And therefore, we're not seeing the fruit of the kingdom grow in our lives. May we pray with our whole heart. May we pray continuously. May we pray together. May we pray expectantly. May we see the God of the impossible move among us. And may that movement drive action in, in our life. May, it, may, may, may there be times where God says, I want you to be the answer to this prayer and lead us out into actions of love and faith and mercy and justice and truth and forgiveness and goodness and generosity and all the fruit of the Spirit. But let it be soaked in prayer. Let it be shaped through prayer. We've spoken of prayer. Now may we pray. Now may we pray. Church, I want to challenge you. Make a daily prayer practice in your life. Find times where you can pray together with the church. We're going to do all we can as a, as a, as a team to, to help you find spaces to do that. We've talked about prayer this summer. May this fall there be a, 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 a tidal wave of prayer in our church. May it just swell up among us that we are those seeking the face of God with all of our hearts, doing it together, doing it with expectation, doing it with faith. Let me pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, would you help make us into a people of prayer, God? Not just a people of, of intentions, uh, but a people of actual talking and listening to you. A people who, who pour out their hearts. A people who pray alone, who pray together, who play, pray in the morning, who pray at night, who pour out our hearts. God, may we learn to hear from you. May we learn to hear by the Holy Spirit how you're speaking to us, how you're causing us to believe, helping us uh, to, to, to trust, giving us imagination for, for a change, for, for creative solutions to problems that we have no idea how to solve. God, may we see uh, Peter-type deliverance taking place in our church. People who feel like like the situation they're dealing with is, is as dire and as hopeless as Peter being chained in maximum security. And may we see your deliverance come down, God. May it bring glory and honor to you. May it bring joy to us. May we have a full share in your kingdom. May we be those people who pray with all of our hearts, God. Fill your church by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be a people of prayer. May it begin right now in our lives. Bless your church. Strengthen her for the days ahead. Help us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.